This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to our colloquium from Molecules to Societies. I think by this point, we are at past the molecules and on to the societies. Um, originally, I was asked to speak on coalitionary aggression in general, and it was such a huge and sensitive topic that I just couldn't manage that. So I've narrowed my presentation to the impact of social ties on coalitionary aggression, which I think is the biggest difference between us and our primate relatives. Okay, the first slide here that I'm showing, it shows the two-edged sword of social ties. On the one hand, binding large coalitions, but on the other hand, reaching out across boundaries. So I'm going to begin with a comparison of intergroup relations between humans and our closest primate relatives, um, from whom we took very different paths about six, six to eight million years ago. So... You can see here the different paths of bonobos, chimps, and humans. Bonobos, for intergroup relations within groups and between groups, they're known to be the make love, not war primates. You have strong intergroup female alliances. And when groups meet, it's being shown that now there's more and more evidence that females can mingle between groups, but males remain tense, but they're not aggressive. Then if you move on to chimps, you have very strong intergroup male alliances and lethal coalitionary intergroup aggression at the borders of territories. And then when you get to humans, it's kind of a mix between the two. On the one hand, you have intergroup affiliation, peacemaking, cooperation, as these two men from Enga and Papua New Guinea are making peace. You also have frequent intergroup coalitionary aggression. So this is these are sort of the major differences in intergroup ties. One of the major differences between humans and, and our other primate relatives is the scale of human intergroup aggression. You have small ritualized wars, somewhat similar to um, chimps patrolling boundaries, to devastating wars with 75 million deaths like World War II. Human coalitionary aggression is the product of a number of tendencies. One of them is phylogenetically based social behavior. Then language, which is great for insulting people and other such things. And then you have cumulative culture. So you have advanced weaponry and technology. You have arts and symbolism which allow boundaries to be formed. These men, these Yali men are patrolling their boundaries with their penis gourds. And then you have institutions, social, religious, and political, which organize people for war. So what is really distinctive in humans uh, is uh, the presence of social ties, which creates very different behaviors. You have lifelong maintenance of mutually supportive blood ties by both males and females, so that when they disperse for mating, they maintain relations with their natal groups and can move back and forth. You have what's been called the release from proximity, and people maintain supportive ties 
in the absence of sharing residence with people in other places. These are almost like virtual communities. And then you have strong selection pressures to attract cooperators in other groups and a major concern with reputation. So the social ties in humans between groups, they provide alternate residences so that if people are short of resources in one area, they can move to another area to get um, help. You have frequent visiting and by local residents, which means sometimes they live with the wife's kin and sometimes with the husband's kin. So what's the scaffolding for these human intergroup ties, which make them so different than our other primate relatives? I, my first candidate for this, and of course we don't know, is cooperative breeding. Cooperative breeding is a reproductive system where groups members other than biological kin help in raising the young. As you can see, these little girls are helping with their siblings. We have a very slow life history and a long childhood in which bonds are formed, long-term bonds of caring with many community members, old and young, and you have continuation of these bonds after dispersal for mating and marriage. And this really pre-adapts for social ties and cooperation. And then here, the one of the better known books on this is Sarah Hurdy's Mothers and Others, and I have some other references down below. The second scaffolding, which really makes a difference between humans and our closest primate relatives is pair bonding. We have long-term bond between a male and a female that leads to reproduction. As Bernard Chappé has argued, I think very convincingly, then paternity is recognized through proximity of father to mother. And then when people recognize mother and father's kin, you double your kinship universe and those which, with whom you have ties. And then maternal and paternal kin have an interest in investing in the offspring reduces male competition and it flattens the hierarchy because males are no longer competing for multiple females. So I'll give an example uh, from my own work. I work with the Junghwasi or Kong Bushmen of Namibia and Botswana, and the Junghwasi Bushmen have networks for minimizing risk. It's called HARO, and this is a gift exchange underwritten by a relationship of mutual support in times of need. So people send gifts to others and it's they say, I hold you in my heart, um, you hold yours, me in yours, and we will help each other when we are in dire need or just also just for pleasurable visiting. Each person has 70 to 20 partnerships per person between two kilometers and 200 kilometers away and they give access to alternate residences in a highly variable environment. And 4.3 months a year are spent visiting partners. This beautiful woman on the left, Shukonga, is um, decked out in all of her Harrow gifts to show and display all of her social connection because she's trying to marry off her grandson. And on the right, the map shows all of her ties. These are where all her Harrow partners are. The ones on the far right at Sahitwa are 200 kilometers away. So that just gives you one ex possible example of such intergroup ties and systems. Okay, so when do we get the first evidence 
of intergroup interaction and tolerance. How do we know? We can tell by the movement of goods found on archaeological sites. We can often trace their origin and then see where they ended up and then get a sense of how far they moved. We can use beads. We can use lithics. We can use ochre and teeth and bones. So there's good evidence for cultural diffusion, which means interaction between groups 350 to 400 Ka ago, regular douche of fire and the Lavalois tool technology. And then you have archaeological sites that begin to show like Ologasali, which begin to show long distance obsidian and ochre transport, 25 to 50 kilometers. In Pinnacle Point in South Africa, 160,000 years ago, you have heated, heat-treated silkrete, which is probably a culturally transmitted technique. Bloombo's Cave in South Africa, 73,000 years ago, you have beads, shell beads, and um, engraved items. And then anywhere between 40 or 50,000 years ago, as in Mumbai, Kenya, you have ostrich eggshell beads, which really take a lot of crafting. So now that we've gotten that background, what is the impact of social ties on coalitionary aggression? Um, the assumption is that all primates, my assumption is that all primates have the potential for aggression and affiliation. And humans both are structured by cultural lenses and cultural institutions. There's no drive for aggression or such things. So the one thing social ties can do is they can act as deterrence. You have Richard Wrangham's imbalance of power hypothesis formulated from chimpanzees, where male chimpanzees in coalitions kill neighboring group members along the borders under large power asymmetries when one group feels much more powerful than the other. Um, and this expands probably access to resources and mates. But for humans, this has drawbacks because of the social ties. If you're dependent on your neighbors for alternate residence, for help, for mates and everything, it's not necessarily a good idea to kill them or deplete their resources. And many times in humans, it's labor rather than resources that may be short. So you don't want to displace um, your neighbors necessarily to get their land. And then you have often in the literature marriage by capture, capture of women. Well, the drawbacks for humans are that you end up with mates without supportive in-laws, no grandmothers, aunts, so on from the maternal side. So you have a trade-off between maybe capturing a woman, getting more mating opportunity, but fewer to invest in the child's survival. So in this way, social ties deter um, coalitional aggression. Social ties can also act as a deterrent via revenge. The most frequent trigger for coalitionary aggression in small-scale societies is to take revenge. Why? I think because the, part, the threat of payback is a way of partially defending territories and resources that cannot be secured at boundaries. That is, people cannot ground their boundaries all the time to see if anyone is infringing. So if somehow, if there's insult or injury or intrusion, the idea that 
that group will take revenge is a deterrent. Revenge is a very strong sentiment. It, it, it exists right up from the origin of humans until today. But in many societies, it's ritualized to minimize the destruction of social ties. So if two people need to take revenge or have an offense, everybody else in the group doesn't want to have their social ties disrupted. So you have a lot of ritualized aggression. You have club and axe fights among the Yanomami. In the Inuit, you have song duels, even over murders. Who can um, concoct the most clever song can win? And disputes are solved in that way. And you have spear duels among the Australian aboriginals. But here comes the downside. <laughs> um, so intergroup social ties can definitely reduce um, coalitionary aggression. However, the intergroup social ties also leads to the formation of larger social units and the great escalation of war. So larger political units form with intense ties into tribes or communities out of networks, and they form supportive coalitions with shared identities and cultural traditions. Usually they have a shared fictive ancestor and an origin myth, and they have kind of a pyramid structure like the one on the left. You have the nesting of smaller segments within larger ones, almost a, with, like those Russian dolls. You have intergroup aggression escalating with genealogical distance. And sometimes an entire segmentary lineage, as the one shown here, may unite against a common enemy. Just to give you an example of this, you know, the communities or tribes that form out of networks. Um, on the left is a, is a map of reconstructed tribal group in Australia prior um, to contact with Europeans. Each group had 500 to 2,000 members. And then on the right is California, where over 90 different languages were spoken by groups from 500, again, to 2,000 members. But these groups did not have fixed boundaries. They had very fluid boundaries. They kind of defined who cooperated with whom. They cooperated. They had cooperation and conflict. And the best evidence for the openness of boundaries is multilingualism. To our shame, many people in the world can speak three to five languages, the languages of their neighbors, in the interest of interaction. Um, so boundaries were by no means closed. Okay, so now I'm just going to go in quickly to social cultural engineering to bind groups. There are many forms known in the world. You have initiations and male associations. These are initiates where I work in Papua New Guinea. They bind cohorts of men for life. They draw on psychological dispositions of men to compete within the group, but when there's a threat to the group, to collaborate. And in these, these um, institutions, elders shape and discipline youths for war and peace. And there's evidence that this is really old, as many people think that the, the ancient cave art what marked initiation sites. And there are some women's coalitions to keep men in line in Nigeria, but they're very rare in human societies. Most are between men. 
And then um, with this coalitionary violence and these larger social groups, you have to hold the group together. So you have a focus on honor, reputation, and sacrosanct values. And this is a quote I got from one of my Inga colleagues, old man. He said, when a man was killed, the clan of the killers sang songs of bravery and victory. Then their land would be like a high mountain. And that is how it was down to the generations. The members of the deceased clan would become small. They would be nothing. But when they had avenged the death of their clansmen, then they would be fine. Reputation was a big deal. It, it tracks investment from surrounding groups and it it shared values and binds groups together. And on the left is a pictures of Enga warriors hanging it up, hamming it up for me. And on the right, an Enga political rally. Then another, you know, really big dilemma in humans is if you're going to fight, and usually you have to fight with neighbors because you can't travel so far, you have to morally disengage from your social ties. And this is done on very common, almost universal ceremonies to dehumanize the enemy. And the taunts and the dehumanization transforms emotion of friendship to lethal animosity within a matter of hours. I documented a full war in anger. And at the war rally, this is one of, they sang songs all night, but they sang, your girls are not like our girls. Their skins are like crocodile skins and have pandanus thorns embedded in them. Our boys are afraid to touch the, their skins. You descendants of snakes, you can pay bride wealth to your own girls and marry all of them. These people had been going to school and church together a few days before. Somebody was killed. There was a dehumanization and people started to kill each other. Of course, Rwanda is famous for this, um, the dehumanization of Tutsis by the Hutu as cockroaches and snakes to be exterminated. And then another very common thing that happens when you have larger coalitions is you have to keep hold those groups together. And there's a lot of conflict and competition within groups. So war is often declared against a common enemy, something, something we know in this country too, to unite um, the group. In the Dani warfare, West Papua, they had tribal alliances. And when it these es when conflict escalated within them, ceremonial wars were called on against another alliance to unite people. Another common thing is headhunting. This in the Philippines. It can be targeted against enemies or random unknown individuals far down rivers. So a group of men may go down 100 miles and find an old lady and a kid in a, in a field, um, kill them and bring back their head, feel like heroes. And headhunting is done for revenge, capture of spirits, demonstration of manhood, uniting raiding parties, and it generates unifying celebrations and feasting. So those are all ways in which social ties, which bind groups, lead to escalation of war. The upside of intergroup ties is that they also facilitate peacemaking, um, something you don't have very much between groups, at all between groups in our closest primate relatives. This is... Um, on the left is a display at a Yadamabi feast to turn enemies to allies. 
peacemaking really limits coalitionary aggression at times. Alliances change very radically with peacemaking. Below is a peacemaking ceremony of the Andaman Islands where they cry together in feast. And in anger, these people I studied who um, had, de- had these dehumanization sessions during their compensation peacemaking ceremonies, they exchange food and rehumanize the enemy. So I'm going to end up with an anecdote by one of my favorite old men in Enga, Papua New Guinea, Ambon Mati, who's a renowned peacemaker. I went to him um, once in the, during the second Iraq war where there was a lot of shock and awe going on. And it, also in Enga, high-powered weapons were just starting to replace bow and arrow in warfare. And war was raging and and churches, schools, clinics, everything were being burned to ash. And I said to him, Ambo, this is just so terrible. People are going crazy here. What's going on? And he said, oh, it's terrible and it's much harder to make peace these days. He said, but I have um, a son down in town who I occasionally visit. He has a television. And one night I watched television and then he looked at me and he said, Obviously, it's seen Iraq on the news. Seems like you have a war going on, too. So um, this is really the unique human proclivity to form social ties between groups, um, carries into group coalitionary grant and cooperation, both to new levels in human societies, regardless of the degree of industrialization or complexity. So I'd like to thank my team members who are all Enga in Papua New Guinea, who are just wonderful workers, and the many, many Enga magistrates, elders, even Rambos and warriors who helped us. And I'd also like to thank the provincial government of Enga province. So thank you for your attention. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me to this fascinating symposium. I will be addressing today's topic in the domain of quantity and number. So many animals have the capacity to discriminate quantities and amounts, for example, while foraging, looking for uh, fruits that are ready to be eaten from those that are not, uh, or let's say looking at uh, predators, amount of predators or prey. So the question is, are these uh, phenomena in the domain of the perception of quantity? or conception of number? And these are questions that are normally addressed in the domain of numerical cognition. Now, with respect to today's symposium, we could place this in the area of comparative numerical cognition. But here we have to step back a little bit in the sense that uh, different fields take the term comparative slightly different. For example, in the domain of comparative anatomy, it is very clear that we can do interspecies comparison, for example, looking at the size of the skull in different species, for example. But as you move along down to a comparative to neuroscience, where you would need, let's say, a nervous system. So as you move along down this list, uh, you would have comparative linguistics, which involves only human languages. So the question for us today is going to be, well, what about comparative numerical cognition? Where would that fall in, uh, along this uh, list? So what do we know? Well, certain things we know. For example, many species are able to discriminate small amount of things, for example, dots. 
uh, when they're in a small range, you know, what we call two or three or one. But as soon as you have more elements, then it's much harder to discriminate these amounts. And this is called subitizing, and it's a phenomenon that's been studied by experimental psychologists since the 1940s. Another capacity that is shared, humans share with many other animals is the capacity to discriminate uh, proportions, for example, of black dots versus white dots when the proportions differ substantially. But when they don't, and they're relatively similar to each other, then it's much harder to discriminate these, these uh, amounts. This capacity is called a large quantity discrimination. Now, some people and some domains and some uh, fields interpret these as being already mathematical capacities. Uh, so people speak of monkey mathematical abilities based on this ability in these capacities, or numerical and arithmetic abilities in non-primate species, or let's say numerical cognitions in bees and other insects. And then, of course, um, the media sometimes um, publish jump, you know, splashy titles like New York Times saying many animals can count some better than you, uh, or referring to the origins of numbers when you look at um, animal data. And let's say a title like this one, Fish as Good as College Students in Number Tests. But there's a different source of uh, data with different kinds of interpretation that look at many uh, human cultures that do not have their practice of counting and they don't have terms for numbers beyond the subitizing range. And many of them exist in the Amazon uh, area and also in the Aboriginal Australia. So this had been referred to, for example, by Caleb Everett as anumeric cultures and anumeric languages. So we are, here we seem to have a clash between the data that comes from, let's say, from animal cognition, saying that, you know, uh, bees and other insects can count, uh, and at the same time having the problem of human cultures with very sophisticated languages and smart people adapting in very challenging environments, not counting. So uh, in the first group, you have primarily data coming from animal cognition, child psychology, and cognitive neuroscience. Um, and I put here a tilde indicating that it's not all of them, but it's many people with more a nativist approach. And on the other hand, we have more anthropology and linguistic typology uh, bringing the data I was just describing. So we seem to have an impasse between what is being reported and particularly when we want to address the question, is there an evolved capacity for number? So the, the group on the left would tend to say that there is a biologically evolved capacity that is specific for number and arithmetic. Whereas on the other side, we would have a capacities for numbers are emerge from cultural practices and uh, learning and language. So what do we find when we read these articles is that um, quite a bit of a confusion in the use of the terms, for example, numeral, which is a sign for number, not number itself, or the definition of counting, or what is arithmetic and what is mathematics. So the term, when we look at the literature, we see sloppy and inconsistent concepts within and across disciplines leading to different views. So if we want to do comparative, um, comparative work, we need an ambiguous and terminology, clear concepts, and sound theories. So what are the problems that we identify? Well, on the one hand, we can see that there's loose terminology, as I was saying, and unfortunately the term um, number 
uh, is used in everyday language, like in passport number or phone number, and also in technical domains, ordinal number or transfinite numbers. And those tend to be different, very different notions of number. Now, as we said, the literature is filled with a confusing terminology, how number is used, and sometimes is referring to many of these concepts here, or sometimes refers to something that is exact, sometimes is approximate, sometimes is symbolic, sometimes is non-symbolic. So when it comes to, comes to talk about numerical cognition, then we have a problem of what really is hidden under this term numerical, when we say numerical abilities or numerical processing, numerical stimulus. Another problem that we can identify is an overinterpretation of trained animal data. So results from training are often arduous and, and, and require considerable environmental support, in, intentionally concocted and designed by humans. So, for example, if we, let's say we can teach, uh, we can um, have monkeys learning how to walk on stilts or a bicycle, but the question with respect to the evolution of locomotion in primates, we need to ask, is that really useful or what do we learn if we want to address that question? So something similar happens when we train animals in our environmentally, uh, humanly designed environments uh, when we put these animals into these heavy trainings. So the training process usually follows extensive and dedicated training, which sometimes takes years to complete. For example, a quote from a practitioner says, here, training a monkey on a simple quantity match to sample task can take over four months and 20,000 trials only to achieve discrimination of collections at a three to four ratio with a 75% accuracy. So train, uh, the trained animal data really inform many interesting questions. There's no doubt about that. But it's not necessarily about biological evolution and biological endowment. Another source of problems is that there's a, this been pretty much a disregard for crucial human data. So while most numerical cognition studies have been done in industrialized societies with writing practices, well-established curriculum and schooling from young age and so on, this poses a problem for evolutionary claims. So we want to know, for example, how is quantity handled in non-industrialized societies? And in this case, we can see that all known cultures that use, in one way or another, natural quantifiers, terms like English few or several or many and so on. But by no means, they all exhibit exact quantification. So, for example, a recent study, uh, a survey in Aboriginal Australia of nearly 200 languages from 13 different linguistic families, um, reported that nearly 90% of these cultures lack numerals beyond five. So this is words or terms or expressions that go beyond the subitizing range. And similar results have been observed in groups of hunter-gatherer uh, cultures in South America and in Africa. So in some, uh, language by itself does not lead to number, appears to be necessary but not sufficient for exact quantification, which seems to be a cultural trait, not a specific, specific biological trait. So some distinctions are needed here. So while we know that some animals have a capacity to discriminate, let's say, chromatic uh, experiences, let's say red from green, uh, or the quantity, amount, when we say that this group here, the top group, has nine elements and the one on the bottom has eight, we are involved in symbolic reference. And this is, appears to be exclusively human capacity. We could refer to this in other languages like nueve and ocho in Spanish or using Roman numerals or, let's say, other bases in mathematical notation to refer to these quantities. 
So what is really number when we take this counting classic familiar list of one, two, three, and so on? Well, we have at least seven properties. So first is that number exa quantifies exactly. It is abstract in the sense that it transcends uh, immediate perception or modality, let's say visual or acoustic and so on. Uh, they are relational. So, for example, numbers refer to each other, like eight is a product of four and two and so on and so forth. But importantly for today's pre presentation is that numbers are referred to symbolically. So really, number is exact symbolic quantification. Now, that appears to be substantially different from what we observe in uh, trained animals in the lab, which whatever phenomenon we observe is mainly achieved via associative learning. So good science needs clear, non-confusing concepts. So how to properly refer to biologically endowed quantity-related phenomena that do not satisfy the prototypical number properties? In other words, in this picture, how do we refer to this part of the picture? Well, we can't really call that numerical in the sense that it lacks properties like symbolic reference. And it's not really quantitative in the sense that it's opposed to qualitative. So we refer to it as quantical, quantical capacities. So if we have a, here a schematic representation of handling of discrete quantity from small amounts to larger amounts in center-periphery-wise, here on the bottom left we have, let's say, subitizing and large quantity discrimination, which we share with many animals, and is fall in the non-symbolic domain. But symbolic references reference allows us to have another type of handling, which uh, allows for natural quantifiers and exact quantification. Natural here, like few, many, and so on in white, and then exact quantification in blue, going from oral language to written practices into increasingly more sophisticated mathematical notation. The point is that quantical cognition is biologically endowed, while numerical cognition is not biologically evolvable. And here I'm going to quote Terry Deacon, saying symbolic reference must be acquired by learning and lacks both the natural associations and transgenerational reproductive consequences that would make such references biologically evolvable. So exact symbolic quantification beyond subitizing range appears to be motivated by cultural preoccupations, tracking variables, stock management, trading, accounting, and so on, and is supported and enhanced by tools and offloading cognition. It requires enculturation. For example, Incas in South America did not have writing as far as we know, but they had material anchors to support calculations, for example. Or uh, grammatical and lexical tools, as been reported by Nick Evans in Papuan languages. Or, of course, writing technology, which was invented only 6,000 years ago. In any case, all these cases require conventionalized symbolic reference for exact quantification. Now, when there is number, it's commonly expressed in base 5 or base 10. Maybe because we have five fingers in our hands, pentadactylism, which is an anatomical trait. The thing is that many animals, many mammals, and uh, have this trait. Pentadactylism is observed in gorillas, in monkeys, and raccoons, and as I said, many, many other animals, bats and seals and so on. So here we have an evolved anatomical trait that is present in many animals. However, symbolic reference is not present. So the hand cannot be recruited symbolically for, let's say, counting. 
And another important aspect is that even in the case of humans, it's not that because we have symbolic reference, we have one way that is genetically determined for how to keep track of numbers using our bodies. The work of Bender and Beller has shown many variations across human cultures of how, for example, the number eight is characterized using our anatomical feature of pentadactylism. So what happens when there is written exact symbolic um, number? Well, even in that case, seems to be mediated by culturally shaped cortical phenotypical plasticity. For example, Tang et al. showed that with a numerical task um, given to English native speakers and Chinese native speakers, um, you would have a different kind of recruitment of neural populations, for example, in the English speakers, um, more activity in the perisylvan area, you know, Broca's area and Wernicke's area compared to the Chinese group and so on. So exact quantification or number then really is not a biological trait, but a cultural trait. It builds on biologically evolved preconditions like subitizing and large quantity discrimination supported by symbolic reference, which is not biologically evolvable brought forth by cultural practices and preoccupations, along with biological phenomena that support teaching, learning, and specific phenotypical plasticity, biological enculturation. So, number, with respect to our topic today of in comparative anthropogeny, well, although ubiquitous today in the industrialized world, numerical cognition like geometry, music, or visual arts should not be taken at a face value. The answer to the question of what it takes to move from quantical to numerical cognition is not trivial. Indeed, only some humans in the right socio-historic context and after tens of thousands of years have made that leap. So we have outstanding questions, of course. For example, what selective pressures may have given rise to quantical cognition? What does it take to move from quantical cognition to numerical cognition? What is the role of natural quantifiers in the consolidation of exact number in children? Building on quantical cognition, how does exact symbolic quantification get grounded and neurally instantiated? And ultimately, how does biological evolution accommodate and support enculturation, symbolic learning and cultural evolution in the human species? These are questions that now, uh, along with colleagues Andrea Bender, Francesco De Rico, and Russell Gray, we're starting to um, address with a recently awarded grant by the European Research Council uh, in our project, Quanta, Evolution of Cognitive Tools for Quantification. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for all the students who have supported this work and the uh, funding agencies, and I'm happy to take questions when uh, at the end of the session. Thank you. Hello, everyone. And um, welcome to this short talk. And I'm, go and as, we're as going to talk about the incidence of carcinomas in humans, and why that could be a little special. Um, here, this first slide shows a comparison of causes of death from various diseases in 1900 versus 2010. And as you can see, way back in 1900, most of the causes of disease in humans uh, showed up as infectious diseases. Whereas in 2010, most of the causes of disease, um, death in humans was either cancer or heart disease. 
Um, so what are the criteria for a human-specific disease? Well, should be very commonly seen in humans and rarely report, reported in closely, closely related species such as the great apes, even in captivity. So malignant neoplasms or cancers appear in humans at different ages, some appearing in very young children like neuroblastoma and Wilms tumors. However, spontaneously occurring carcinomas, carcinomas are malignancies of epithelial cells of the breast, stomach, colon, lung, ovary, prostate, cervix, uterus, pancreas, etc. are common in older human populations. And on the right there, I put in some pathology, gross pictures of lesions I had seen, the top one showing a lobe of um, lung with a primary cancer right there. The next one shows an ulcerated carcinoma at the junction of the esophagus and stomach. And the next one is a breast carcinoma. This is actually showing the uh, typical bits that you see in cancer. It's called cancer because it's a crab. It extends into the surrounding tissue. So these carcinomas are also the ones most associated with various environmental factors such as diet and reproductive activity. Like humans, great apes have been reported to develop malignancies, but most of these malignancies arise in the blood cells, also called leukemias and lymphomas, and in mesenchymal tissues called sarcomas. However, spontaneously occurring carcinomas seem very rare in the non-human primate. The reason for the apparent rarity of carcinomas in great apes are unknown. Benign tumors of some of these organs have been reported, indicating that surveillance has been adequate, that thus it is possible that these carcinomas will begin to be reported in great apes as captive populations continue to age. So epithelium, in putting on my teaching hat here, epithelium, epi meaning outside, thelium means a cloak. So epithelial cells are those cells that communicate with the outside world. So squamous, the epithelium lining the skin, ear, canal, anus, cervix, vagina, esophagus, columna, cells lining the trachea lungs, lining the GI tract, the genitourinary tract, cells of the liver, cells of the pancreas, it makes enzymes, cuboidal epithelium of the kidney tubules, ovarian follicle, transitional epithelium of the bladder and ureter. Endothelium is another term. It's one layer of squamous epithelium that lines the blood vessels, but there's no communication with the outside. And so this is called the endothelium, um, lines all the blood vessels. So during embryogenesis, the three germ layers, endoderm, ectoderm, mesoderm, differentiate into epithelial and non-epithelial cells, which eventually form differentiated tissues and organs. Epithelial cells rise from stem cells and often line body surfaces that interact directly with the outside. They are typically attached to the underlying connected tissue by a basal membrane. And the underlying stroma includes blood vessels, lymphatic vessels, hematopoietic cells, stromal fibroblasts, extracellular matrix, neuronal structures, smooth muscle, adipose tissue, etc. So benign tumors is in benign uh, tumors is a new growth of cells which form a lump, but they don't invade the basal membrane like you'd see in a polyp or a lipoma, fibroadenoma, leiomyomas, which are also called fibroid tumors. Carcinomas arising from epithelial cells are invasive and can metastasize to different organs, as shown here. This metastasis to the liver. Here's a metastasis in the brain, cerebellum. And uh, carcinomas, as we saw before, um, as I explained before, arise as skin, cervix, esophagus, and lung. And then adenocarcinomas uh, are gut, lung, prostate, breast, etc. 
Sarcomas arise in supporting tissue and can be also invasive, like filiformes, melanomas, glioblastomas, osteosarcomas, fibrosarcomas, etc. But today we're talking about carcinomas arising, those arising from the epithelial cells and which invade and metastasize. This is an example of a lymphoma on the right. On the left is a picture of a benign lymph node with the T cells and the B cells and medulla and so on. Whereas on the right is an example of a lymphoma where these lymphoid cells have proliferated and formed large and small follicles and have infiltrated into the surrounding adipose tissue. So lymphomas are the kind of tumors or malignancies that most other vertebrates get and even some of the rodent models that are being used as they age they end up getting lymphomas but the carcinomas are pretty rare. So I'll go over a couple of uh, pieces of literature uh, that's out there talking about you know the first one here was published in um, 2009 talking about neoplasia in the chimpanzee. There, they described about 105 spontaneous and 12 experimental neoplasms. 74 of those spontaneous tumors occurred in females, 24 in males, 7 in animals, other animals. Of the spontaneous uh, tumors, 8 9 were benign, 14 were malignant, and 2 were undetermined. And most of these malignant tumors were unusual rare tumors, uh, carcinomas of the biliary tract, which are rare in humans, but were noticed in this particular chimp population. The next publication I wanted to highlight was this uh, uh, write-up by Dr. Finch, uh, Evolution of Human Lifespan and Disease of um, Aging, back in 2010. And he's, he wrote, chimpanzees and other primates appear to develop much less neoplasia. And um, he remarked that no spontaneous mammary carcinomas have been reported. And in males 25 and years and older, there's benign prostatic, prostatic hyperplasia, but no neoplasia was noted. The next one, in going in order of uh, chronology, in 2015, we had uh, written up an observation, the apparent rarity of epithelial carcinomas in captive chimpanzees. Um, by, and because the about one in three humans in developed countries will develop a carcinoma, but this is rare in captive chimpanzees. The simple ascertainment bias is an unlikely explanation as these non-human uh, hominids are recipients of excellent veterinary care and research facilities and zoos and are typically subjected to necropsies when they die. In keeping with this notion, benign tumors and cancers that are less common in humans are well documented in this population. Uh, Dr. Lewinstein and colleagues uh, in 2016 then published a comparative pathology of aging great apes, looking at bonobos, chimpanzees, gorillas, and orangutans, and uh, commented that neoplasms common to aging humans and apes include uterine lyomas, lyomyomas, which are those fibroid tumors in chimpanzees, but other tumors of elderly humans, such as breast, prostate, lung, colorectal cancers are uncommon in apes. And then the, a group in, um, at Yerkes in 2017 looked at 35 years 
of uh, chimpanzee pathology and observed uh, 1,362 spontaneous pathology lesions observed at necropsy or biopsy. And cardiomyopathy was the most frequent lesion observed at the time with no mention about neoplasia. The same group again reported cause of death analysis over that same 35-year period, again showing cardiomyopathy as a primary cause with no mention of neoplasia. But in a table included in the that was included, they showed that carcinomas were observed in about four of the chimpanzees that they did the necropsies on and and they do mention that lyomyomas of the uterus were also observed but there were no real um, these carcinomas were those odd ones of the biliary tract and so on that are rare in humans. So now segue into the possible roles of silic acids and certain siglegs in adding fuel to the fire, allowing these carcinomas to occur in humans. So this is an introduction to the diversity in cell surface silic acids. So everyone's heard about DNA making RNA, making protein, but the cell is not done until the glycans, the cell surface glycans are made. And at the very tips of these glycans are these uh, diamond-shaped uh, um, objects called silic acids. These silic acids are found on the surfaces of every cell, whether it's squamous or columna or cuboidal epithelium or whatever. And these silic acids are really important in interacting with circulating lymphocytes, monocytes, platelets, tumor cells, pathogens, and influence the progression and spread of human malignancies and certain aspects of human evolution, regulation of the immune response, and microbe binding, etc. There are two major kinds of silic acids on the mammalian cell surface. For ease, we've called them NU5AC and NU5GC. The, the humans had an inactivation of the CMAH enzyme. The gene was inactivated about two to three million years ago. And so humans can, can only make NU5AC and cannot convert to make NU5GC. So chimps and bonobos and gorillas and orangutan have both NU5AC and NU5GC, but humans only have NU5AC because we can't, because of the lack of that gene. So the consequence of not having the CMH gene and loss of NU5GC, we think may be due to the fact that when we ingest NU5GC in food, eating four-legged animals as shown here, that GC gets incorporated into the epithelium. And we've shown in publications over the last couple of decades that all humans make anti-NU5GC antibodies. This circulating anti-NU5GC antibodies along with the NU5GC incorporation in the epithelium uh, contributes to a chronic inflammation, which is we are terming xenocyelitis, xeno, because the GC comes from outside, sialic acid, itis inflammation. And we've proposed that in several publications that this is what possibly complicates atherosclerosis because we've seen NU5GC in the endothelium and atheromas. And also this xenoxylitis, chronic inflammation, contributing to um, uh, cancer occurrence. And this next slide shows the NU5GC expression in endothelium. 
and in some normal tissues like prostate and and cancer and and colonic epithelium and in the blood vessels there as well but when you get cancer like ovarian carcinomas there's a lot of expression in the new 5gc in the endothelium and in the cancer as well ovarian prostate colon etc um, so that was the new 5GC story, and many of you have heard that before. Now, a uh, little bit on Siglex, and uh, this is a nice cartoon I thought I'd share to show the Siglex interaction with sialic acid on the cell surface, uh, regulating immune homeostasis, immune escape by pathogens, and um, cancer cells as well. Among this group of cell surface proteins known as salic acid binding immunoglobulin-like lectins or Siglex. The CD3 related Siglex are found in innate immune cells and are involved in cell signaling. One Siglex, however, appears to have gone rogue in humans. Siglex 12, included by the gene Siglex Siglec 12 no longer binds salic acid and seems to be involved in abnormal cell signaling in humans. It could also play a role in cancer progression and help explain why humans have a much higher incidence of carcinomas, cancers that arise from, that arise from epithelial cells, where Siglec 12 is abundant than other great apes. Only about 30% of humans produce this rogue protein. Most people have a mutation that inactivates Siglec 12. Comparing cohorts of cancer patients, we found that functional Siglec 12 was associated with a poor prognosis in late-stage colorectal cancer patients. And this is that graph from that paper showing that the number of patients, there's a high percentage of patients in this advanced colorectal cancer cohort that express Siglec 12, and those patients did uh, poorly, the overall survival was much less than the patients that did not express Siglec 12. So the abundance of expression of carcinomas, malignancy arising from epithelia, with a much higher frequency, expected frequency of Siglec 12 in cancers. So in normal people, Siglec 12 is only expressed in about 30% of people. But in cancers, 80% of cancers expressed it. And advanced carcinomas are much more likely to occur in individuals who's, who's, who have an intact Siglec 12 gene, likely because the encoded Siglec 12 protein um, uh, and SHIP-related onc oncogenic pathways, and we're still working on the mechanism there. So this is just a panel to show you the multiple carcinomas that were examined in that study. Um, we looked at squamous carcinomas and adenocarcinomas and showed a high expression in the squamous carcinomas. There were a few that didn't re really express Siglec 12, and the adenocarcinomas also, there was a high expression, but not as much as in the squamous carcinomas. So squamous carcinomas are those that arise in the head and neck, the tongue, the oral cavity, the esophagus, cervix, and so on. Thank you for your attention. During this time, when I tried to explain a little bit of uh, some research, research that's been ongoing as to why carcinomas are so prevalent in the human population as opposed to what is seen in the great apes. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.